continuing to read from Women Who Run With The Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Chapter 4, a very exciting chapter for all my friends out there. It's called The Mate, Union With The Other. Uh, Just a footnote before we begin that union with the other may not just be romantical and it may not just be with the opposite sex. Um, Let's read on and find out more. Him for the wild man. Manavi. If women want men to know them, really know them, they have to teach them some of the deep knowing. Some women say they are tired, already have done too much in this area. I humbly suggest they have been trying to teach a man who does not care to learn. Most men want to know, want to learn. When men show that willingness, then is the time to reveal things, not just because, but because another soul has asked. You will see. So here are some of the things which will make it much easier for a man to understand for him to meet a woman halfway. Here is a language, our language. There is no doubt that the wild man seeks his own down-under-the-earth bride. In tales among the Kells, there are the famous pairs of wild gods who love one another so. They often live under a lake where they are the protectors of the underlife and the underworld. From Babylonian mythos, the Siddharthide Inanna calls to her lover, the bull plough, Come, cover me with your wildness. And even in modern times, even now in the upper Midwest, the mother and father of God are still said to roll about in their spring bed, making thunder. Similarly, there is no one a wildish woman loves better than a mate who can be her equal. Yet over and over, perhaps, since the beginning of infinity, those who would be her mate are not quite sure they comprehend her true nature. What does a woman truly desire? This is an ancient question, a soulful riddle about the wildish and mysterious nature which all women possess. While the hag in The Wife of Bath croaked out that the answer to this question was that women wish to have sovereignty over their own lives, and this is indeed an irrevocable fact, there is yet another and equally powerful truth which answers this question as well. Here is a story that replies to the age-old question about women's true nature. Those who endeavour in the ways and means shown in the story shall be lover and mate to the wildish woman forever. Miss V. B. Washington gave me this version of the African-American story called Manavi. Manavi. There was a man who came to court two sisters who were twins, but their father said, You may not have them in marriage until or unless you can guess their names. Manavi guessed and guessed, but he could not guess the names of the sisters. The young women's father shook his head and sent Manavi away time after time. One day, Manavi took his little dog with him on a guessing visit 
and the dog saw that one sister was prettier than the other and the other sister was sweeter than the other. Though neither sister possessed all virtues, the little dog liked them very much, for they gave him treats and smiled into his eyes. Manavi failed to guess the names of the young women again that day and trudged home. But the little dog ran back to the hut of the young women. There he poked his ear under one of the side tables, side walls, and heard the women giggling about how handsome and manly Manavi was. The sisters, as they spoke, called each other by name, and the little dog heard and ran as fast as he could back to his master to tell him. But on the way, a lion had left a big bone with meat on it near the path, and the tiny dog smelled it immediately, and without another thought, he veered off into the brush, dragging the bone. There he happily licked and snapped at the bone till all the flavour was gone. Oh! The tiny dog suddenly remembered the forgotten task, but unfortunately he had also forgotten the names of the young women as well. So back he ran to the twin sister's hut a second time, and this time it was night, and the young women were oiling each other's arms and legs and readying themselves as though for a celebration. Again the little dog heard them call each other by name. He hopped up in the air in a fight of delight, fit of delight and was racing back down the path to the heart of Manavi when from the brush came the smell of fresh nutmeg. Now there was nothing the little dog loved more than nutmeg. So he took a quick turn off the path and sped to where a lovely kumquat pie sat cooling on a log. Well, soon the pie was all gone and the little dog had lovely nutmeg breath. As he trotted home with a very full belly, he tried to think of the young women's names, but again, he had forgotten them. So finally, the little dog raced back to the sister's hut again, and this time the sisters were readying themselves to be wed. Oh no, thought the little dog, there is hardly time left. And when the sisters called each other by name, the little dog put the names into his mind and sped away, absolutely and resolutely determined that nothing would stop him from delivering the precious two names to Manavi right away. The little dog spied some small fresh kill on the trail but ignored it and vaulted over it. The little dog for a moment thought he smelled a curl of nutmeg in the air but he ignored it and instead ran and ran toward home and his master. But the little dog did not plan for a black stranger to leap out of the bush and grab him by the neck and shake him so hard his tail almost fell off. For that is what happened. And all the while the stranger shouted, Tell me who those names, what are the names of the young women, so I may win them. The little dog thought he himself would faint from the tight fist about his neck. But he fought bravely. He growled, he scratched, he kicked and finally bit the giant stranger between the fingers and the little dog's teeth stung like wasps. The stranger bellowed like a water buffalo but the little dog would not let go. The stranger ran off into the bush with the little dog dangling from his hand. Let go, let go, let go of me, little dog and I will let go of you, pleaded the black stranger. And the little dog snarled between his teeth. 
Do not come back or you won't see morning ever again. Woof! And so the stranger escaped into the bush, moaning as he ran. And the little dog proceeded to half hobble and half run down the path to Manavi. Even though his belt was bloody and his jaws ached, the names of the young women were clear in his mind and he limped up to Manavi beaming. Manavi washed the little dog's wounds and the little dog told him the whole story and the two names of the young women as well. Manavi raced back to the village of the young women with the little dog on his shoulders riding high, the dog's ears flying like two horse tails. When Manavi reached the father with the names of his daughters, the twin sisters received Manavi completely dressed to journey with him. They had been waiting for him all along. That is how Manavi won two of the most beautiful maidens of the Riverland. And all four, the sisters, Manavi and the little dog, lived in peace together for a long time to come. Crick, crack, kraut. Now this story is out. Crick, crack, crun. Now this story is done. And this is how Clarissa Pinkula S. explains the story. The folds of events within the story, the meaning behind the events. Let's listen. The dual nature of women. With folk stories as with dreams, we can understand their content subjectively. All the symbols portraying aspects of a single person's psyche. But we can also understand tales objectively as they relate to conditions and relations in the outer world. Here let us talk about the Manavi tale more in terms of relationship between a woman and her mate keeping in mind that many times, as it is without, it is also within. This story unravels an old, old secret about women, and it is this. To win the wildish woman's heart, a maid would understand her natural duality through and through. Although we could understand the two women in the tale ethnologically as brides-to-be in a polygamous culture, from an archetypal perspective, This story speaks about the mystery of two powerful feminine forces within a single woman. The Manavi story contains all the essential facts for being close to the wildish woman. Manavi, through his faithful dog, guesses the two names, the two natures of the feminine. He cannot win unless he solves the mystery. And he must use his own instinctual self, the dog self, to accomplish it. Anyone close to a wildish woman is in fact in the presence of two women, an outer being and an interior creatura, one who lives in the topside world, one who lives in the world not so easily seeable. The outer being lives by the light of day and is easily observed. She is often pragmatic, acculturated and very human. The creatura, however, often travels to the surface from far away often appearing and then as quickly disappearing, yet always leaving behind a feeling, something surprising, original and knowing. Understanding this 
Dual nature in women sometimes causes men and even women themselves to close their eyes and hail heaven for help. The paradox of women's twin nature is is that when one side is more cool in feeling tone, the other side is more hot. When one side is more lingering and rich relationally, the other may be somewhat glacial. Often one side is more happy and elastic, while the other has a longing for I know not what. One may be sunny, while the other is bittersweet and wistful. These two women who are one are separate but conjoined elements which combine in thousands of ways. The power of two. While each side of a woman's nature represents a separate entity with different functions and discriminate knowledge, they must, like the brain with its corpus callosum, have a knowing or a translation of one another and therefore function as a whole. If a woman hides one side or favors one side too much, she lives a very lopsided life, which does not give her access to her entire power. This is not good. It is necessary to develop both sides. There is much to be learned about the strength of two when we examine the symbol of twins. Throughout the world since ancient times, twins have been thought to be endowed with supernatural powers. In some cultures, there is an entire discipline devoted to the balancing of the nature of twins, for they are thought to be two entities which share one soul. Even after their deaths, twins are fed, spoken to, given gifts and sacrifices. In, ver- in various African and Carib communities, the symbol of twin sisters is said to possess juju, the mystical energy of the soul. Therefore, it is required that the twins be impeccably taken care of, lest a bad fate f- befall the entire community. One precaution from the hoodoo religion of Hayati requires the twins always be fed exactly the same measured portions in order to summarily ally all jealousy between them, but more so to prevent the wasting away of one of them, for if one dies or shall the other, so shall the other, and the special soulfulness they bring to the community will be lost. Likewise, a woman has tremendous powers when the individual dual aspects are consciously recognized and be held as a unit, held together rather than kept apart. The power of two is very strong and neither side of the duality should be neglected. They need to be fed equally for together they bring an uncanny power to the individual. I once heard a story from an old African-American man in the Mid-South. He came out of an alley as I was sitting amidst the graffiti of an inner city park. Some people would call him crazy for he spoke to anyone and no one. He shuffled along with one finger held out as though to the to test the wind's direction. Quintus does recognize such persons too as having been touched by the gods and we call them El Bulto, the bundle, for they carry a certain kind of wear and show it to any who will look. This is particular kindly 
El Bulto gave me a, this particular kindly El Bulto gave me a story about ancestral transmission. He called the story One Stick, Two Stick. This is the way of the old African kings, he whispered. This is the way of the old African kings, he whispered. <clears throat> In the story, an old man is dying and calls his people to his side. <clears throat> he gives a short, sturdy stick to each of his many offsprings, wives and relatives. Break the stick, he instructs them. With some effort, they all snap their sticks in half. This is how it is when a soul is alone without anyone. They can be easily broken. This is how it is when a soul is alone without anyone. They can be easily broken. The old man next gives each of his kin another stick and says, This is how I would like you to live after I pass. Put your sticks together in bundles of twos and threes. Now break these bundles in half. No one can break the sticks when there are two or more in a bundle. The old man smiles. We are strong when we stand with another soul. When we are with another, we cannot be broken. Likewise, when both sides of the dual nature are held close together in consciousness, they have tremendous power and cannot be broken. This is the nature of the psychic duality of winning the two aspects of women's personality. By itself, the most civilized self is fine, but somehow lonely. By itself, the wildish self is also fine, but wistful for relationship with the other. The loss of women's psychological, emotional and spiritual powers comes from separating these two natures from one another and pretending one or the other no longer exists. This tale can be viewed as being about masculine duality as well as feminine, female duality. The Manavi man has his own dual nature, a human nature and a dog nature. This human nature, while sweet and loving, is not enough to win the courtship. It is his dog nature, his instinctual self, that has the ability to creep near the wildish woman and with his keen listening, hear their names. It is the dog self that learns to overcome superficial seductions and retain the most important knowings. It is Manavi's dog nature which has sharp hearing and tenacity, the instincts to burrow under walls and to find, to chase and to retrieve valuable ideas. Masculine forces can carry bluebeard-like or murderous Mr. Fox sorts of energy and thereby attempt to demolish the dual nature structure of women this this sort of that sort of suitor cannot tolerate duality and is looking for perfection for the one truth the one immovable unchangeable feminine substantia feminine substance embodied in the one perfect woman i if you meet this kind of person run the other way as fast as you can it is better to have a manavi type lover both within and without he is a much better suitor for he is intensely devoted to the idea of the two and the power of the two is in acting as one integral entity. So Manavi wishes to touch this most ubiquitous but mysterious combination of soul life and women and he has a sovereignty all of his own, 
since he is himself a wildish natural man he resonates to and has a taste for the wildish woman among that cumulative tribe of men in a woman's psyche whose members jungians call animus there is also a manavi like attitude which finds and claims a woman's duality finding it valuable quotable and desirable instead of devilish ugly and to be disdained Manavi, whether in the internal or external world, represents a fresh but faith-filled lover whose central desire is to name and understand the mysterious and numinous double in women's nature. We continue. The power of name. Naming a force, creature, person or thing has several connotations. In cultures where names are chosen carefully for their magical or auspicious meanings, to know a person's true name means to know the life path and the soul attributes of that person. And the reason the true name is often kept secret is to protect the power of the name so that he or she might grow into the power of the name, to shelter it so that no one will either denigrate it or distract from it, and so that one's spiritual authority can develop to its full proportions. In fairy tales and folk tales, there are several additional aspects to the name, and these are at work in the tale of Manavi. Although there are some tales where the protagonist searches for the name of a male volant force in order to have power over it, more so the questing after the name is in order to be able to summon that force or person, to call that person close to oneself and to have relationship with that person. The latter is the case of the Mana- in the Manavi story. He travels back and forth, back and forth, in sincere efforts to draw the power of the two close to him. He's interested in naming them, not in order to seize their power, but instead to gain self-power equal to theirs. To know the names means to gain and retain consciousness about the dual nature. Wish as one may, and even with the use of one's might, one cannot have a relationship of depth without knowing the names. The guessing of the names of the dual nature of the two sisters is as difficult a task initially for women as it is for men, but there need not be extensive angst about it. If we are interested to find the names, then we are on the right path. And what are the exact names of these two symbolic sisters in women's psyche? The names of the dualities, of course, vary from person to person, but they tend to be opposites of some sort. Like much of the natural world, they are at first they at first may seem so vast as to be without pattern or repetition, but close observation of the dual nature, asking after it and hearing its answers, will soon reveal a pattern to it all. A pattern that is vast. It is true, but has a stability like waves ebbing and flowing. Its high and low tides are predictable. Its deeper currents are mappable. In the matter of guessing the names, to say a person's name is to make a wish or a blessing over them each time the name is called. 
we name these dual temperaments in ourselves in order to marry ourselves to them. In naming, we discover personal and hidden meanings and the wildish beauty of womanliness, no matter the personalities of our oppositions. This naming and marrying is called, in human words, self-love. And when it occurs between two individual persons, it is called loving another. <clears throat> Manavi guesses and guesses, but cannot guess the names of the twins with his mundane nature alone. The dog self acts in Manavi's service. Women often crave a mate who has this kind of endurance and the wit to continue trying to understand her deep nature. When she finds a mate of that substance, she will give lifelong loyalty and love. Hmm. In the tale, the twins' father acts as the guardian of the mystical pair. He is symbolic of an actual intrapsychic feature which ensures the integrity of things staying together and not being split apart. It is he who tests the worthiness, the rightness of the suitor. It is good for women to have such a watcher. In this sense, it could be said that a healthy psyche tests new elements which apply to it for inclusion, that the psyche has an integrity about it, a screening process. A healthy psyche containing a fatherly watchman does not just admit any old thought attitude or person, only those which are sentient or striving to become so. <coughs> The father of the two sisters says, Wait, until you convince me you are interested in really knowing about the true essence, the true names, you may not have my daughters. The father is saying you can't have understanding of women's mysteries just for the asking. You must do the work first. You must endure and Pursuing this matter, you must divine yourself ever close to the real truth of this female soul puzzle. This endeavor which is both a descent and a riddle. The next one is called the tenacious dog nature. The tenacious dog nature. The little dog in the story knows exactly how psychic tenacity works. Dogs are the magicians of the universe. By their presence alone, they transform grumpy people into grinning people and sad people into less sad people. They engender relationship. As in the ancient Babylonian epic Gilgamesh, wherein Inkadu, the hairy animal man, counterbalances Gilgamesh, the too rational king, the dog is one entire side of man's dualistic nature. He is the wood's nature, the one who can track who knows by sensing what is what. <coughs> the dog likes the sisters because they feed him and smile at him. The mystical feminine readily understands and accepts the instinctual nature of the dog. Dogs represent, among other things, he or she who loves from this heart easily and long, who forgives effortlessly, can run long and fight, if necessary, to the death. The dog nature gives concrete clues to know a mate will win the heart of the dual sisters and the wildish women, woman. 
Manavi fails to guess the names again and trudges home, but the little dog runs back to the hut of the young women and listens till he hears their names. In the world of archetypes, the dog nature is both psychopomp, messenger between the topside world and the dark lit world, the, and chthonic, uh, chthonic, that of the darker or farther back regions of the psyche. The underworld in particular. It is this sensibility that a mate reaches into in order to understand duality. The dog is similar to the wolf, only a little more civilized, although as we see in the rest of the story, not by much. This little dog as psychopomp is the instinctive psyche. It hears and sees differently than a human. It travels to levels the ego would never think of by itself. It hears words and instructions that the ego cannot hear and it follows what it hears. Once at a science museum in San Francisco, I entered a chamber filled with microphones and speakers that simulated a dog's hearing. When a palm tree waved in the wind, it sounded like Armageddon. When footsteps approached from far off, it was like a million sacks of cornflakes being crunched right in my ear. The world of the dog is filled with constant cataclysmic sound. Sound that we as humans do not register at all, but the little dog does. So the canid hears outside the range of human hearing. This medi mediumistic aspect of the instinctual psyche intuitively hears the deep work the deep music, the deep mysteries of the feminine psyche. It is this nature which is able to know the wild nature in women. I'm going to continue because this is only three minutes. So the next part says, title is Creeping Seductive Appetite. It is not by accident that men and women struggle to find the deeper sides of their natures and yet become distracted for any number of reasons mostly pleasures of various sorts. Some become addicted to those pleasures and stay forever entangled there and never continue with the work. The little dog is also at first distracted by its appetites. Appetites are often charming like, like foragidos, robbers, dedicated to the theft of time and libido. Yours. Jung remarked that some control must be placed on human appetite. Otherwise, as you can see, one will stop for every bone hawk in the road, every pie on a log. Maids who seek to name the dualities may, like the dog, lose their resolve as they are tempted off the path. This may especially occur if they are feral or starved creatures themselves. Too, they may, too, they may all lose their memory of what they were about. They may be tempted, attacked, attacked by something from their own unconscious which wishes to force itself upon women for exploitative gain or wishes to entice women for its own pleasure or in an effort to banish a hunter's appetite, a hunter's emptiness. On the way back to his master, the dog is distracted by a luscious bone and in the process forgets the young women's names. This episode embodies a very common occurrence in deep psychic work. The distractions of appetite interfere with the primary process. 
Not a month goes by that I do not hear an analyst saying, well, I became distracted from my deep work because I became hot sexually and it took seven days to quench the blaze. Or, because I decided this week was just the right time to give all my 500 houseplants a haircut. Or, because I began seven new creative ventures, had a great time at it and then decided that none of them truly showed real promise and dropped them all. So you see, the bone on the road is waiting for all of us. It has the luscious stink of a dog a dog can hardly refuse. It, at worst, it is likely a favorite addiction, one which already has cost us and cost us. But even if we have failed time and again, we must try again. Till we can pass it by and get on with the primary work. The deep work is a lot like sexual arousal. It begins from ground zero, accelerates in plateaus, becomes sustained and intense. If the plateaus are interrupted harshly, imagine a loud and unexpected noise. You must begin all over again. There is a similar arousal tension in working with the archetypal layer of the psyche. If the tension is interrupted, one has to start nearly from scratch. So there are many bones on the road, juicy, nice, interesting, savagely exciting bones. But somehow they cause us to be carried off into an amnesia. To not only forget where we are in the work, but to forget what the work is at all. The Quran wisely advises, You will be called upon to account for all the permitted pleasures in life if you pleasures in life you did not enjoy while on earth. However, too much or even a little bit of a good thing at the wrong time can cause a gross loss of consciousness. Then instead of a sudden rush of wisdom, we walk about like an absent-minded professor muttering, um, now where was I? It takes weeks, sometimes months to recover from these distractions of ours. In the story, the dog runs back to the sister's hut, again hears their names and races off once more. This candidate has the right instinct to try again and again. But oh, oh, there's a kumquat pie which distracts him and he forgets the names again. Another aspect of appetite has assaulted the creature and again drawn him from his task. And although his gut is satisfied, the soul's work is not. We begin to understand that this process of remaining conscious and particularly not giving in to distracting appetites while trying to elicit psychic connection is a long process and one that is difficult to hold. We see the wily little dog trying his damnest. Yet it is a long way from the deep archetypal unconscious back to the conscious mind. It is a long way down to the names and a long way back to the surface again. Holding knowledge in the consciousness is hard when there are snares along the path. The kumquat pie and the bone represent distracting seductions that are in their own way delicious. In other words, there are elements of everyone's psyches that are devious, trickish and scrumptious. These elements are anti-consciousness. They thrive by keeping things dark and exciting. Sometimes it is hard to remind ourselves that we are holding out of the excitement, out for the excitement of the light. The dog is the light bringer. He's trying to bring up conscious connection to the mystical twin nature. Something 
rhythmically attempts to prevent this. Something that is unseen but also assuredly is the prisoner, is the positioner of bones and the fixer of pies. No doubt this is a dark stranger, another version of the natural predator of the psyche which opposes consciousness. Because of this naturally occurring opposer, in the psyche of all persons, even the most healthy psyche is susceptible to losing its place. Remembering the real task and reminding ourselves over and over in practically mantra fashion will bring us back to consciousness. Thank you. The next part of explanation for this story goes like this. It's titled, Achieving Fierceness. The little dog learns the names of the women one more time and races back to his master. He ignores the feast on the road and the enticing smells from the bush. Here we see the consciousness of the psyche rising. The instinctive psyche has learned to curb itself, prioritize and focus. It refuses to be diverted. It is now intent. But from nowhere, a dark thing suddenly jumps out of the little, out at the little dog. The black stranger shakes the dog and shouts, Tell me, tell me those names. What are the names of the young women so I may win them? The black stranger does not care for duality or the finer points of the psyche. To him, the feminine is a possession to be one and nothing more. The black stranger can be personified by a real person in the outer world or a negative complex within. It does not matter which, for the devastating effect is the same. This time, the dog engages in unrestrained battle. Whether male or female, this occurs in outer life when an incident, a slip of words, an odd thing of some sort, jumps out and tries to make us forget who we are. There is always something in the psyche that tries to rob us of the names. There are many name robbers in the outer world also. In the story, the little dog fights for its life. Sometimes the only way we learn to hold on to our deeper knowing is because a stranger jumps out. Then we are forced to fight for what we find dear. Fight to be serious about what we are about. Fight to get past our superficial spiritual motives. Which Robert Bly calls the desire to feel groovy. Fight to hold on to the deeper knowledge. Fight to finish what we have begun. The little dog fights to keep the names and thusly conquers a repetitive slide into unconsciousness. Once the battle is fought, amazingly the dog has not lost the names, for that is what they were fighting over. Knowledge about the wild feminine, however, possesses, whoever possesses, it has a power equal to that of the woman herself. The dog has fought to give this power to the worthy man, Manavi. He has fought to keep this power from an aspect of the ancient human nature that would misuse it. The giving of power into the right hands is as important as the finding of the names. 
the heroic dog gives the names to Manavi, who presents them to the young woman's father. The young woman, women are ready to go away with Manavi. They've all along been waiting for Manavi to discover and retain conscious knowing of their intrinsic natures. So we see that the two things which prevent progress in these matters are the distractions of one's appetites and the dark stranger. The face sometimes being the innate oppressor within the psyche and sometimes a personal situation in the outer world. Regardless, each traveller's Regardless, each traveller knows innately how to defeat these looters and moraders. Keep hold of the names. The names are all. And I'll continue to read one more chapter of the explanation called The Interior Woman. Sometimes women become tired and cranky while waiting for their mates to understand them. The woman, the women say, why can't they know what I think, what I want? Women become fatigued with asking this question. Yet there is a solution to this dilemma, a solution which is efficient and effective. If a woman wants a mate who is responsive in this way, she will reveal to him the secret of women's duality. She will tell him about the interior woman, that one who, added to herself, makes two. She does this by teaching her mate to ask her two deceptively simple questions that will make her seen, heard and known. The first question is this. What do you want? Almost everyone asks some version of this, just as a matter of course. But there is yet one more essential question and that is, what does your deeper self desire? If one overlooks a woman's dual nature and takes a woman at face value, one is in for a big surprise. For when the woman's wildish nature rises from her depths and begins to assert itself, she often has interests, feelings and ideas which are quite different from those she expressed before. To securely weave a relationship, a woman will also ask the same to questions of her mate. As women, we learn to poll both sides of our nature and that of others as well. From the information we receive reciprocally from both sides, we can very clearly determine what is valued most and how to respond accordingly. When a woman consults her own dual nature, she is in the process of looking, canvassing, taking soundings of material that is beyond consciousness and therefore often astonishing in content and process and most often very valuable. To love a woman, the mate must also love her wildish nature. If she takes a mate who cannot or will not love this side, she shall surely in some way be dismantled and be left to limp and uh, limp about unrepaired. So men, as much as women, must name their dual natures. The most valued lover, the most valuable parent, the most valued friend and most valuable wilder man is the one who wishes to learn. Those who are not delighted by learning, those who cannot be enticed into new ideas or experiences, cannot develop past the road post they rest at now. 
If there is but one force which feeds the root of pain, it is the refusal to learn beyond this moment. We know that the creature, wild man, is seeking his own earthy woman. Afeared or not, it is an act of deepest love to allow oneself to be stirred by the wildish soul of another. In a world where humans are so afraid of losing, there are far too many protective walls against being dissolved in the luminosity of another human soul. I'd like to repeat that. We know that the creature wild man is seeking his own earthy woman. Afeared or not, it is an act of deepest love to allow oneself to be stirred by the wildish soul of another. In a world where humans are so afraid of losing, there are far too many protective walls against being dissolved in the luminosity of another human soul. The mate for the wildish woman is the one who has a soulful tenacity and endurance, one who can send his own instinctual nature to peek under the tent of a woman's soul life and comprehend what he sees and hears there. The good match is the man who keeps returning to try to understand, who does not let himself be deterred. So the wildish task of the man is to find her true names and not to misuse that knowledge to seize power over her, but rather to apprehend and comprehend the luminous substance from which she is made, to let it wash over him, amaze him, shock him, even spook him, and to stay with it and to sing out her names over her. It will make her eyes shine. It will make her eyes shine. It will make his eyes shine. It will make his eyes shine. But lest one rest too soon, there is yet another aspect to naming the dualities. A more fearsome one yet, but one essential to all lovers. While one side of a woman's dual nature might be called life, life's twin sister is a force named death. The force called death is one of the two magnetic forks of the wild. If one learns to name the dualities, one will eventually bump right up against the bald skull of the death nature. They say only heroes can stand it. Certainly the wildish man can stand it. Absolutely, the wildish woman can stand it. They're in fact wholly transformed by it. So now, please meet Skeleton Woman. And that was the end of chapter 4. The next chapter is called Hunting, when the heart is a lonely hunter. And the story of the Skeleton Woman. After a break. Be well, my friend. Let's begin with chapter 5, Hunting, When the Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Skeleton Woman, Facing the Life-Death-Life Nature of Love. Wolves are good at relationships. Anyone who has observed wolves sees how deeply they bond. Mates are most often for life. Even though they clash, even though there is dissension, their bonds carry them over and through harsh winters, plentiful springs, long walks, new offspring, old predators, tribal dances and group sings. The relational needs of humans are no different. 
While the instinctual lives of wolves include loyalty and lifelong bonds of trust and devotion, humans sometimes have trouble with these matters. If we were to use archetypal terms to describe what determines the strong bonds among wolves, we might surmise that the integrity of their relationships is derived from their submission to the ancient life-death-life nature. The life-death-life nature is a cycle of animation, development, decline and death that is always followed by reanimation. This cycle affects all physical life and all facets of psychological life. Everything, the sun, novas and the moon as well as the affairs of humans and those of the tiniest creatures like cells and atoms has this fluttering, then faltering and then fluttering again. Unlike humans, wolves do not deem the ups and downs of life, energy, power, food, opportunity as startling or punitive. The peaks and valleys just are and wolves ride them as efficiently, as fluidly as possible. The instinctual nature has the miraculous ability to live through all positive bone, all negative consequence and still maintain relationship to self, to another. Among wolves, the life-death-life cycles of nature and fate are met with grace and wit and the endurance to stay tight with one's mate and to live long as well as can be. But in order for humans to live and give loyalty in this most fit manner, in this way which is most wise, most preserving and most feeling, one has to go up against the very thing one fears most. There is no way around it, as we shall see. One must sleep with Lady Death. Skeleton Woman is a haunting, is a hunting story about love. In stories from the North, love is not a romantic triest between two lovers. Stories from the circumpolar regions describe love as a union of two beings whose strength together enables one or both to enter into communication with the soul world and to participate in fate as a dance with life and death. To understand this story, we have to see that there, in one of the harshest environs and one of the most stressed hunting cultures in the world, love does not mean a flirtation or a pursuit for simple ego pleasure, but a visible bond composed of the psychic sinew of endurance, a union which prevails through bounty and austerity through the most complicated and most simple days and nights. The union of two beings is seen as angakok, magic in itself, as a, as a relationship through which the powers that be become known to both individuals. But there are requirements for this kind of union. In order to create this enduring love, one invites a third partner to the union. The third partner is the skeleton woman. She's also called Lady Death and as such, she is the life-death-life nature in one of her many guises. In this form, Lady Death is not a disease but a deity. In a relationship, she has the role of the oracle who knows when it is time for cycles to begin and end. As such, she is the wildish aspect of relationship the one of whom men are most terrified. 
and sometimes women also for when faith in the transformative has been lost the natural cycles of increase and adoration are feared as well to create enduring love skeleton woman must be admitted to the relationship and be embraced by both lovers here in this old inuit story are the psychic stages for mastery and that of embrace this story has was given to me by mary ukalath ukalath let us peer at the images which rise from the smoke of this story how beautiful and i will immediately start reading the story in the next bit see you soon skeleton woman she had done something of which her father disapproved although no one any longer remembered what it was but her father had dragged her to the cliffs and thrown her over and into the sea there the fish ate her flesh away and plucked out her eyes as she lay under the, under the sea her skeleton turned over and over in the currents one day a fisherman came fishing well in truth many came to this bay once but this fisherman had drifted far from his home place and did not know that the local fisherman stayed away saying this inlet was haunted the fisherman's hook drifted down through the water and caught of all places in the bones of skeleton woman's rib cage the fisherman thought oh now i've really got a big one now i really have one in his mind he was thinking of how many people this great fish would feed how long it would last how long he might be free from the chore of hunting and as he struggled with this great weight on the end of the hook the sea was stirred to a thrashing froth and his kayak bucked and shook for she who was beneath struggled to disentangle herself and the more she struggled the more she tangled in the line no matter what she did she was inexorably dragged upward tugged up by the bones of her own ribs the hunter had turned to scoop up his net so he did not see her bald head rise above the waves he did not see the little coral creatures glinting in the orbs of her skull he did not see the crustaceans on her old ivory teeth when he turned back with his net her entire body such as it was had come to the surface surface and was hanging from the tip of his kayak by her long front teeth ah cried the man and his heart fell into his knees his eyes hid in terror on the back of his head and his ears blazed bright red ah he screamed and knocked her off with the prow with his oar and began paddling like a demon towards shoreline and not realizing she uh, she was tangled in his line he was frightened all the more for she appeared to stand upon her toes while chasing him all the way to the shore no matter which way he zigged his kayak she stayed right behind and her breath rolled over the water in clouds of steam and her arms flayed out as though to snatch him down into the depths ah 
he wailed as he ran around a ground. In one leap he was out of his kayak, clutching his fishing stick and running, and the coral white corpse of skeleton woman still snagged in the fishing line, bumpity bumped behind right after him. Over the rocks he ran, and she followed. Over the frozen tundra he ran, and she kept right up. Over the meat laid out to dry he ran, cracking into pieces as his mukluks bore down. Throughout it all she kept right up, in fact grabbed some of the frozen fish as she was dragged behind. This she began to eat, for she had not gorged in a long, long time. Finally the man reached his snow house and dove right into the tunnel and on hands and knees scrabbled his way into the interior. Panting and sobbing he lay there in the dark, his heart a drum, a mighty drum. Safe at last, oh so safe, yes safe, thank the gods, raven, yes, thank raven, yes, and all bountiful Sedna, safe at last. Imagine when he lit his whale oil lamp, there she, it lay in a tumble upon his snow floor, one heel over her shoulder, one knee inside her ribcage, one foot over her elbow. He could not say later what it was. Perhaps the fire it softened her features or the fact that he was a lonely man. But a feeling of some kindness came into his breathing and slowly he reached out of his grimy hands, out his grimy hands and using words softly like mother to child, began to untangle her from the fishing line. Oh, no, no, no. First he untangled the toes, then the ankles. Oh, no, no, no. On and on he worked into the night until dressing her in furs to keep her warm. Skeleton woman's bones were all in the order a human's should be. He felt into his leather cuffs for his flint and used some of his hair to light a little more fire. He gazed at her from time to time as he oiled the precious wood of his fishing stick and rewound the gut line. And she in the furs uttered not a word. She did not dare, lest this hunter take her out and throw her down to the rocks and break her bones to pieces utterly. <clears throat> the man drowsy slid under his sleeping skins and soon was dreaming, and sometimes as humans sleep, you know, a tear escapes from the dreamer's eye. We never know what sort of dream causes this, but we know it is either a dream of sadness or longing. And this is what happened to the man. The skeleton woman saw the tear glisten in the firelight and she became suddenly so thirsty. She tinkled and clanked and crawled over to the sleeping man and put her mouth to his tear. <coughs> the single tear was like a river and she drank and drank and drank until her many years long thirst was slaked. While lying beside him, she reached inside the sleeping man and took out his heart, the mighty drum. She sat up and banged on both sides of it. Boom, 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 boom. As she drummed, she began to sing out, Flesh, 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 flesh. And the more she sang, the more her body filled out with flesh. She sang for hair and good eyes and nice fat hands. She sang the divide between her legs and breasts long enough to wrap for warmth and all the things a woman needs. 
and when she was all done she also sang the sleeping man's clothes off and crept into his bed with him skin against skin she returned the great drum his heart to his body and that is how they awakened wrapped one around the other tangled from their night in another way now a good and lasting way the people who cannot remember how she came to her first ill fortune say she and the fisherman went away and were consistently well fed by the creatures she had known in her life under water the people say that it is true and that is all they know and so we start the explanation part of this beautiful story let's see what clarissa has to tell us about it title of the chapter is death in the house of love inability to face and untangle the skeleton woman is what causes many love relationships to fail to love one must not only be strong but wise strength comes from the spirit wisdom comes from skeleton woman as we see in the tale if one wishes to be fed for life one must face and develop a relationship with the life death life nature when we have that we're no longer bumbling along fishing for fantasies but are made wise about the necessary deaths and startling births that create true relationship when we face skeleton woman we learn that passion is not something to go get but rather something generated in cycles and given out it is skeleton woman who demonstrates that a shared living together through all increase and decrease through all endings and beginnings is what creates an unparalleled love of devotion this story is an apt metaphor for the problem of modern love the fear of life death life nature the death aspect in particular in much of western culture the original character of the death nature has been covered over by various dogmas and doctrines until it is split off from its other half life we have erroneously been trained to accept a broken form of one of the most profound and basic aspects of the wild nature we have been taught that death is always followed by more death it is simply not so death is always in the process of incubating new life even when one's existence has been cut down to the bones rather than seeing the archetypes of death and life as opposites they must be held together as the left and right side of a single thought it is true that within a single love relationship there are many endings yet somehow and somewhere in the delicate layers of the being that is created when two people love one another there is both a heart and breath while one side of the heart empties the other fills when one breath runs out another begins if one believes that the life death life force has no stanza beyond death it is no wonder some humans are frightened of commitment they are terrified to go through even one ending they cannot bear to pass from the veranda into the inner rooms they are fearful for they sense that there in the breakfast room of the house of love sits lady death 
tapping her toe, folding and refolding her gloves. Before her is a work list on one side, what is living, on the other, what is dying. She begins to carry through, she means to maintain a balance. The archetype of the life-death-life force is grossly, grossly misunderstood, grossly misunderstood throughout many modern cultures. <coughs> Some no longer understand that Lady Death is loving and that life will be renewed through her ministrations. In many folklores, she receives much sensational press that she carries a scythe and harvests the unsuspecting, that she kisses her victims and leaves their corpses scattered behind her, or that she drowns them and then wails long into the night. But in other cultures, such as East Indian and Mayan, which take more care to reach, to teach about the wheel of life and, and death, <coughs> Lady Death enfolds the already dying, easing their pain, giving them comfort. She is said to turn the baby in the womb to the head-first position so it can be born. She is said to guide the hands of the midwife to open the pathways of the mother's milk in the breast as well as to comfort anyone who weeps alone. Rather than vilifying her, those who know her in full cycle respect her largesse and her lessons. Archetypally, the life-death-life nature is a basic component of the instinctive nature. This is personified through world myth and folklore as Dama del Murte, Lady Death, Quatlik, Hell, Barshata, Kuan Yin, Baba Yaga, Lady in White, Compassionate Nightshade, and as a group of women called by the Greeks, Graye, the Grey Ladies. From the banshee in her carriage made of night cloud to La Llorona, the weeping woman at the river. From the dark angel who brushes humans with a wingtip, collapsing them in ecstasy to swamp fire that appears when death is imminent. Stories are filled with these remnants of the old life-death-life goddess personifications. <coughs> Much of our knowledge of the life-death-life nature is contaminated by our fear of death. Therefore, our ability to move with the cycles of the life-death-life nature is quite frail. These forces do not do something to us. They are not thieves who rob us of the things we cherish. This nature is not a hit-and-run driver who smashes what we value. No, no. The life-death-life forces are part of our own nature. An inner authority that knows the steps, knows the dance of life and death. It is composed of the parts of ourselves who know when something can, should and must be born and when it must die. <coughs> it is a deep teacher if we can only learn its tempo. Rosario Castellanos, the Mexican mystic and ecstatic poet, writes about surrender to the forces that govern life and death. Dada me la, miurte kyu me falta. Give me the death I need. <coughs> Excuse me, I have been recovering from an infection. 
<clears throat> nothing serious, but it has <clears throat> quite drained me today. But I must keep to my promise and read this story to myself and you. Poets understand that there is nothing of value without death. Without death there are no lessons. Without death there is no dark for the diamond to shine from. While those who are initiated are unafraid of Lady Death, the culture often encourages that we throw skeleton woman over the cliffs. For not only is she fearsome, it takes too long to learn her ways. A soulless world encourages faster, quicker, thrashing about to find the one filament that seems to be the own be the one that will burn forever and right now. However, the miracle we are seeking takes time, time to find it, time to bring it to life. The modern search of a perpetual motion machine rivals the search for a perpetual love machine. It is not surprising that people trying to love become confused and harried and as in Hans Christian Andersen's story, the red shoes dance a mad dance, unable to stop the frantic jig and whirl right past the things they in their deepest hearts cherish most. Yet there is another way, a better way, which takes into account human foibles, fears and quirks, and as so often happens in the cycles of individuation, most of us just stumble over it. Next chapter, The First Phases of Love The Accidental Finding of Treasure In all tales there is material that can be understood as a mirror reflecting the illnesses or the well-being of one's inner life. Also in tales there are mythic themes that can be understood, understood as describing stages of an instruction for maintaining balance in both inner and outer worlds. While we could interpret the skeleton woman story as representing the movements within a single psyche, I find this tale most valuable when understood as a series of seven tasks that teach one soul to love another deeply and well. These are <clears throat> Discovering another person as a kind of spiritual treasure, even though one may not at first realize what one has found. Next, in most love relationship comes the chase and the hiding, a time of hopes and fears for both. Then comes entangling and understanding of the life-death-life aspects of the relationship and the compassion for the task. Next come the relaxing into trust, the ability to rest in the presence and goodwill of the other. And after that, a time of sharing both future dreams and past sadness. This being the beginning of healing archaic wounds with regard to love. And finally, the use of the heart to sing up new life and the intermingling of body and soul. <coughs> the first task, the finding of treasure, is found in dozens of tales throughout the world that describe the catching of a creature from beneath the sea. When this occurs in the narrative, we always know that a big struggle will soon take place between what lives in the topside world and what lives or has been repressed into the underworld. In this tale, the fish fisherman snags more than he ever expected. Oh, it's a big one. He 
he thinks as he turns to gain his net. He does not realize that he is bringing up the scariest treasure he will ever know, that he is bringing up more than he can yet handle. He does not know that he will have to come to terms with it, that he is about to have all his powers tested. And worse, he does not know that he does not know. That is the state of all lovers at the beginning. They are blind as bats. Humans who do not know any better have the proclivity to approach love the same way the fisherman in the story approaches the hunt. Ah, I hope I get a big one, one that will feed me for a long time to come, one that will excite me, make my life easier, one I can brag about to all of the hunters back home. This is the natural progression of the naive or famished hunter. The very young, the uninitiated, the hungry and the wounded have values that revolve around the finding and the winning of trophies. The very young truly do not know what they are seeking yet. The hungry seek sustenance and the wounded seek consolation for previous losses. Yet all will have treasure happen upon them. When one is in the company of the great powers of the psyche, in this case, the life-death-life woman, and one is naive, then one is sure to get more than what one is fishing for. So often we entertain the fantasy of being fed from the deep nature, through a love affair, a job, or by money, and we hope these feelings will last for a long time. We would like not to do any further work. In truth, there are even times when we would like to be fed without doing much work at all. In reality, we know nothing of value ever develops this way, but we wish it anywhere. To lay inert and only dreaming of a perfect love is easy. It is an anesthetization from which we might never recover, but for ruthlessly snagging something valuable yet outside our awareness. For the native, for the naive and wounded, the miracle of the psyche's ways is that even if you are half-hearted, irreverent, didn't mean to, didn't really hope to, don't want to, feel unworthy to, aren't ready for it, you will accidentally stumble upon treasure anyway. Then it is your soul's work to not overlook what has been brought up, to recognize treasure as treasure, no matter how unusual its form, and to consider carefully what to do next. <coughs> The fisherman motive shares some archetypal symbolism with the hunter and these represent, among many things, the psychological elements of humans that seek to know, that strive to nourish self through merging with the instinctual nature. In stories as in life, the hunter and fisherman begin their quest in one of the three ways, in a sacred, mean-spirited or bumbling manner. In the skeleton woman story, we can see that the fisherman is a little on the bumbling side. He is not mean-spirited, but he does not exactly have sacred attitude or intention either. Sometimes lovers begin this way too. At the beginning of a relationship, they are only fishing for a little excitement or a little help me make it through the night antidepressant. Without realizing it, they are unwittingly enter a part of their own and the other person's psyches in which skeleton woman resides. While their egos may be fishing for fun, 
This physical space is sacred ground for skeleton woman. If we troll these waters, we are guaranteed to hook her for certain. <coughs> the fisherman thinks he is pursuing simple nourishment and nurture, when in fact he is bringing up the entire elemental feminine nature, the neglected life-death-life nature. It cannot be overlooked for wherever new life begins, the death queen shows up. And when this occurs, at least for the moment, people pay rapt and fearful attention. In motif, skeleton woman is similar to Sedna, another life-death-life figure from Inuit mythology. Sedna is the great deformed creation goddess who lives in the Inuit underworld. Sedna's father threw her over the edge of his kayak for, unlike other dutiful daughters of the tribe, she had run off with a dogman. Like the father in the fairy tale, the handless maiden, Sedna's father chopped off her hands. Her fingers and limbs sank to the bottom of the sea, where they became fish and seals and other form, life forms that sustained the Inuit ever after. What was left of Sedna also sank to the bottom of the sea. There she became all bones and long, long hair. In the Inuit rite, other Earthbound shamans swim down to her, bringing peace food to quiet her snarling dog husband and guardian. The shamans comb her long, long hair while singing to her, begging her to heal the soul or body of a person above, for she is the great Angakok, magician. She is the great northern gate of life and death. Skeleton woman who spent an eon lying under the water can also be understood as a woman's disused and misused life-death-life cycle force. In her vital and resurrected form, she governs the intuitive and emotive ability to complete the life cycles of birthings and endings, grievings and celebrations. She is the one who peers at things. She can tell when it is time for a place, a thing, an act, a group or a relationship to die. This gift, this psychological sensitivity, awaits those who would lift her to consciousness through the act of loving another. <coughs> A part of every woman and every man resists knowing that in all love relationships, death must have her share. We pretend we can love without our illusions about love dying. Pretend we can go on without our superficial expectations dying. Pretend we can progress and that our favorite flushes and rushes will never die. But in love, psychically, everything becomes picked apart. Everything. The ego does not want it to be so. Yet it is how it is meant to be. And the person of a deep and wildish nature is undeniably drawn to the task. What dies? Illusion dies. Expectations die. Greed for having it all, for wanting to have all be beautiful only, all this dies. Because love always causes a descent into the death nature. We can see why it takes abundant self-power and soulfulness to make that commitment. When one commits to love, one also commits to the revivification revivication of skeleton woman and all her teachings.
The fisherman in the story is slow to realize the nature of what he has caught. This is true of everyone at first. It is hard to realize what you are doing when you are fishing in the unconscious. If you are inexperienced, you do not know that down there lives the death nature. Once you find out what you are dealing with, your impulse is to throw her back. We become like the fathers who throw their wild daughters out of the kayak into the sea. We know that relationships sometimes falter when they move from the anticipatory stage to the stage of facing what is really on the end of one's hook. This is as true of the relationship between a mother and her 18-month-old child as that between parents and their teenager, as between friends, as that between lovers of a lifetime or of just a little time. The relationship began in all goodwill begun in all goodwill, flaps and sways and sometimes staggers when the sweetheart stage is over. Then instead of enacting a fantasy, the more challenging relationship begins in earnest and all one's craft and wisdom must be called into action. The skeleton woman who lies under the water is an inert form of deep instinctual life, which knows by heart the creating of life, the creating of death. If lovers insist on a life of forced gaiety, perpetual pleasure, pleasure armors, and other forms of deadening intensity, they might insist on sexual donor and blitz, thunder and lightning, or a torrent of the delectable and no strife at all. There goes the life-death-life nature right over the cliff, drowned in the sea again. Refusing to allow all the cycles of life-death-life in the love relationship causes the skeleton woman nature to be ripped from her psychic lodgings and drowned. Then the love relationship takes on a strained, let us say never be sad and let us always have fun, face to be maintained at all costs. The soul of the relationship sinks out of sight, set to drift underwater, senseless and useless. Skeleton woman is always thrown over the cliff when one or both lovers cannot stand her or understand her. She is thrown over the cliff when we misapprehend the use of transformative cycles, when things must die and be replaced by others. If lovers cannot stand these life-to-life processes, they cannot love one another over and beyond hormonal aspirations. Hmm. Throwing the life-death-life nature over the cliff always causes the woman lover and the soulful force in men to become a skeleton bereft of a genuine love or nourishment. As woman is a keeper um, of cycles, the cycle life-death-life cycles are at the centre of her concern. Hence, there can be little new life without a decline in that which has gone previously. Lovers who insist on attempting to keep everything at a psyche scintillating peak will spend their days in an increasingly ossified relationship. The desire to force love to live on in its most positive form only is what causes love ultimately to fall over dead and for good. The fisherman's challenge is to face Lady Death, her embrace and her life and death cycles. Unlike other tales in which an underwater creature is captured but then released, 
thereby granting the fisherman a wish in gratitude. Lady Death is not letting go. Lady Death is not graciously granting any wishes. She surfaces like it or not, for without Lady Death there can be no real knowledge of life, and without that knowing there can be no fealty, no real love or devotion. Love costs. It costs bravery. It costs going the distance as well shall we, as well shall see. I see a phenomenon in time and again in lovers regardless of gender. It goes something like this. Two people begin a dance to see if they would care to love one another. Suddenly, skeleton woman is accidentally hooked. Something in the relationship begins diminishing and slides into entropy. Often the painful pleasure of sexual excitement is abating or one sees the other's frail, injured underside or sees the other as not quite trophy material and that's when the bald and yellow-toothed old girl rises to the surface. It seems so gruesome, yet this is the premier time when there is a real opportunity to show courage and to show love. To love means to stay with. It means to merge from a fantasy world into a world where sustainable love is possible. Face to face, bones to bones, a love of devotion. To love means to stay when every cell says, run. When lovers are able to tolerate the life-death-life nature, when they are able to understand it as a continuum, as a night between two days, and as the force that creates a love that endures a lifetime, they are able to face the skeleton woman in the relationship. Then together they are strengthened and both are called to deeper understanding of the two worlds they live in. One, the mundane world, the other, the one of spirit. During my 20 years of practice, men and women have borrowed, burrowed into my sofa saying with happy terror, I met someone I didn't mean to. I was just minding my own business. I wasn't looking and wham, I met this someone with a capital S. Now what am I going to do? And they continue to nurture the new relationship they begin to cower. As they continue to nurture the new relationship, they begin to cower. They shrink. They worry. Are they having love anxiety over this person? No. They are feeling fearful because they are beginning to glimpse a bald skull rising from beneath the waves of their passion. Ay, what shall we do? I tell them this is a magic time. It does little to calm them. I tell them we shall now see something wonderful. They have little faith. I tell them to hold on and this they are able to do, but barely. Before I know it, from the viewpoint of the analysis, the little boat of their love relationship is rowing faster and faster. It careens into shore and before you can say Jack Rabbit, they are running for their lives. And as an analyst, I am running along beside them, trying to put a word in them, while guess who bumpity bumps along behind. <coughs> For most, when first confronting skeleton woman, the impulse is to run like the wind, and as far away as possible. Even running is part of the process. It is only human to do so, but not for long, and not forever. Here ends the second chapter of the analysis. <clears throat> Next we'll begin the chase and the hiding tomorrow. Be well, my friend. Mm-hmm.
after a day's gap in which I went and visited my favorite home city. I mean, only one home city, right? That's my favorite. Here we are again. The next part of the explanation of the same story by Clarissa Pinkola S. in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. The Chase and the Hiding The death nature has an old habit of surfacing in love affairs just at the time we feel we have won over a lover, just as we feel we have landed a big fish. But that's when the life-death-life nature surfaces and scares everyone sideways. That is when more contortions go on about why love cannot, will not, should not work for either party concerned. That is where all the diving into the burrow is done. It is an effort to become invisible. Invisible to the lover? No! invisible to skeleton woman. That is what what all the running and hiding is about. But as we see, there is nowhere to hide. Rational psyche goes fishing for something deep and not only lands it, but is so shocked it can barely stand it. Lovers have a sense that something is chasing them. Sometimes they think it is the other who is doing the chasing. In reality, it is skeleton woman. At first, when we learn to truly love, we misunderstand many things. We think she is chasing us, when in fact, our intention to relate to another human being in a special way is what hooks skeleton woman, so she cannot escape from us. Wherever love is nascent, the life-death-life force will always surface, always. She writes this. So here are the fisherman and skeleton woman all tangled up with each other. As skeleton woman bumps along behind the terrified fisherman, she begins a primitive participation in life. She becomes hungry and eats dried fish. Later, as she comes even more to life, she will quench her thirst with the fisherman's tear. We see this odd phenomena in all love affairs. The faster he runs, the more she picks up speed. When one or the other lover attempts to run from the relationship, the relationship is paradoxically invested with more life. And the more life that is created, the more frightened the fisherman becomes. And the more he runs, the more life is created. This phenomena is one of life's central tragic comedies. One person in such a situation dreamed of meeting a woman lover whose soft body opened like a cabinet. Inside her body cavity were embryos shining and throbbing, daggers on shelves dripping with blood and the bags packed with the first green colour of spring. The dreamer was given great pause, for this was a dream about the life-death-life nature. These glimpses into the interiority of skeleton woman caused the lovers in in training to seize their fishing sticks and hay across the land at breakneck speed in an effort to put as much distance as possible between themselves and her. Skeleton woman is great and mysterious. She is dazzling, numinous. Psychically, she stretches from horizon to horizon and from heaven to hell. She is much to embrace. 
Yet it is no wonder people run to embrace her. What one fears can strengthen, can heal. The running and hiding phase is the time during which lovers try to rationalize their fear of the life-death life cycles of love. They say, I can do better with someone else. Or, I don't want to give up my mm, fill-in-the-blank. Or, I don't want to change my life. Or, I don't want to face my wounds or anyone else's. Hmm. Or, I'm not ready yet. Or, I don't want to be transformed into first knowing, without first knowing in absolute detail what I will look like, feel like afterwards. It is time when thoughts are all jumbled together, when one makes a desperate dive for shelter and the heart beats, not from cherishing and being cherished as much as from abject terror, to be trapped by lady death. Hey, the horror of meeting the life-death-life force face-to-face, face, double A. Some make the mistake of thinking they're running away from relationship with the lover. They're not. They're not running away from love or the pressures of the relationship. They are trying to outrun the mysterious life-death-life force. Psychology diagnoses this as fear of intimacy, fear of commitment. But those are only symptoms. The deeper issue is one of misbelief and distrust. Those who run away forever fear to truly live according to the cycles of the wild nature. So here the death woman chases the man across water, across the boundary of the unconscious to the conscious land mass of the mind. The conscious psyche becomes aware of what it has caught and tries desperately to outrun it. We do this constantly in our lives. Something fearsome raises its head. We aren't paying attention and keep pulling it up, thinking it's some booty. It is a trove, but not the kind we've imagined. It is a treasure we've unfortunately been taught to fear. So we attempt to run away or throw it back or prettify it and make it what it is not. But this will not work. Eventually, we will have to kiss the hag. The same process follows in love. We want only beauty, but wind up, wind up facing the baddie instead. We push skeleton woman away, but she proceeds. We run, she follows. She is the great teacher we have been saying we want. No, not this teacher, we shriek. We want a different one, too bad. This is the teacher everyone gets. There is a saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. This means the teacher comes when the soul, not the ego, is ready. The teacher comes when the soul calls and thank goodness for the ego is never fully ready. If it was solely up to the ego's readiness to draw the teacher to us, we would remain essentially teacherless for life. We are blessed since the soul continues transmitting its Desire, regardless of the ever-changing opinions of our egos. People fear that when things become tangled and frightening in love relationships, that the end is near. But this is not so. Because this is an archetypal matter. Because skeleton, skeleton woman does the work of fate. 
the hero is supposed to take off across the horizon the death woman is supposed to come right along behind the lover in training is supposed to dive into his little hut and gasp and choke and hope he's safe and skeleton woman is supposed to follow him right into his safe haven he's supposed to untangle her and so forth for modern lovers the idea of taking space is like the fisherman's little snow house where he thinks he's safe sometimes this fear of confronting the death nature is distorted into begging off trying to keep only the pleasurable sides of the relationship going without dealing with skeleton woman uh, that will never work it causes lovers who are not taking space immense anxiety for they themselves are willing to meet skeleton woman they have primed themselves they have reinforced themselves they are attempting to keep their fears balanced and now just as they are ready to untangle this mystery just as one or the other is about to drum on the heart and sing up a life together one lover cries not yet not yet oh no not ever <coughs> There is a vast difference between the need for solitude and renewal and the desire to take space to avoid the inevitable intercourse with skeleton woman but intercourse meaning exchange with and acceptance of the life death life nature is the next step in order to strengthen one's ability to love those who enter into relationship with her will gain an enduring skill for love those who won't won't there is no way around it all the not readies and all the i need time are understandable but not for a, only for a short while the truth is that there is never a completely ready there is never a really right time as with any descent to the unconscious there comes a time when one simply hopes for the best pinches one's nose and jumps into the abyss If this were not so we would not have needed to create the words heroine hero or courage The work of learning the life death life nature has to be done Put off skeleton woman sinks beneath the water water but will rise again and again and give chase again and again It is her work to do this it is our work to learn If one wishes to love there is no getting around it the work of embracing her is a task without a task that challenges there can be no transformation without a task there is no real sense of satisfaction to love pleasure takes little to love truly takes a hero who can manage his own fear granted many many people come to this escape and hide stage Some unfortunately arrive here over and over again. The entrance to this burrow is rutted with all the scrambling. But those who care to love emulate the fisherman. They strive to light the fire and face the life death life nature. They contemplate what they fear and paradoxically respond with both conviction and wonder. Conviction and wonder. And that's a beautiful insight. into what's really going on in this story of the skeleton woman so much to sit and uh, absorb and let it work on our psyche
I hope sometimes you sit with a pen and paper and draw and scribble while you listen to a story. I find that immensely gratifying and even affords me, it even affords me a better sense of attention, which I thoroughly enjoy as much as I enjoy reading for you. Tomorrow, the next part of the explanation, untangling the skeleton. Until then, so long, my friend, be well. And we continue. The next part of the explanation is titled Untangling the Skeleton. The skeleton woman tale is one of many universal suitor test stories. In a suitor test, lovers may prove their right intention and power, usually demonstrating that they have the cojones or ovarios to face a powerful and fearsome luminosity of some sort. Though here we call it the life-death-life nature, others might call it an aspect of the self or the spirit of love. Yet others might say God or gracia, a spirit of energy or any number of appellations. The fisherman shows his right intent, his power and his increasing involvement with skeleton woman by untangling her. He looks at her all bent this way and that, and he sees in her a glimmer of something. He knows not what. He had run from her, panting and sobbing. Now he thinks to touch her. She is touching his heart in some way just by being. When and being herself. Just by being herself. When we comprehend the loneliness of the life-death-life nature, who, through no fault of her own, is constantly thrown away, then perhaps we too can be touched by her travail. If it is love we are making, even though we are apprehensive or frightened, we are willing to untangle the bones of the death nature. We are willing to see how it all goes together. We are willing to touch the not beautiful in another and in ourselves. This is something so beautiful. I really believe in this because I have been touched like that. And I believe I aspire and continue to somewhat touch others like that. Behind this challenge is a cunning test from the self. That's self with a capitalist. It is found even more clearly in tales where the beautiful appears ugly in order to test someone's character. In the tale Diamonds, Rubies and Pearls, a good but reviled stepdaughter draws water for a wealthy stranger and is rewarded by having diamonds, rubies and pearls spill from her mouth when she speaks. The stepmother orders her own lazy daughters to stand at the same well and wait upon the wealthy stranger. But this time another stranger in rags comes. When she begs for a dipper of water, the evil daughters haughtily refuse. The stranger rewards them by causing snakes, toads and lizards to fall from their mouths whenever, ever after. In fairy tale justice, as in deep psyche, 
Kindness to that which seems less is rewarded by good, and refusal to do good for one who is not beautiful is reviled and punished. It is the same in the great feeling states such as love. When we enlarge ourselves to touch the not beautiful, we are rewarded. If we spurn the not beautiful, we are severed from life and left out in the cold. For some it is easier to think higher, more beautiful thoughts and to touch those things that positively transcend us than to, tu- than to touch, help and assist the not so positive. Even more so, as the story illustrates, it is easy to turn away the not beautiful and feel falsely righteous about it. This is the love problem of dealing with skeleton woman. What is not beautiful? Our own secret hunger to be loved is the not beautiful. Our disuse and misuse of love is the not beautiful. Our dereliction in loyalty and devotion is unlovely. Our sense of soul separateness is homely. Our psychological warts, inadequacies, misunderstandings and infantile fantasies are the not beautiful. Additionally, the life-death-life nature, which births, destroys, incubates and births again, is considered by our cultures the not beautiful. To untangle skeleton woman is to understand that conceptual error and to set it all right. All right. To untangle skeleton woman is to understand that love does not mean all glimmering candles and increase. To untangle skeleton woman means that one finds heartening rather than fear in the darkness of regeneration. It means balm for old wounds. It means changing our ways of seeing and being to reflect the health rather than dearth of soul. To love We touch the basic and not-so-lovely bony woman, untangling the sense of the life-death-life nature for ourselves, bringing her back to order, letting her live again. It is not enough to haul the unconscious to the surface, not even enough to accidentally drag her home. It stops the progression of love to be feared or disdainful or for, for very long. Untangling skeleton woman begins to break the spell. That is the fear that one will be consumed, made made dead forever. Archetypally, to untangle something is to make a decent, to follow a labyrinth, to descend into the underworld or the place where things are revealed in an entirely new way to be able to follow a convoluted process. In fairy tales, to loosen the girdle upon, undo the knot, untie and untangle means to begin to understand something, to understand its applications and uses, to become a mage, a knowing soul. When the fisherman untangles skeleton woman, he begins to have hands-on knowledge of life's and death's articulations. The skeleton is an excellent image for the life-death-life nature. As a psychic image, the skeleton is composed of hundreds of small and large 
chick images. Uh, as a psychic image, the skeleton is composed of hundreds of small and large odd-shaped sticks and knobs in continuous harmonious relationship to one another. When one bone turns, the rest turn, even if imperceptibly. The life-death life cycles are like that exactly. When life moves, the bones of death move sympathetically. When death moves, the bones of life begin to turn too. <clears throat> also, when one tiny bone is out of place, chipped, spurred, sub subluxed, it hurts the integrity of the whole. When the life-death-life nature in oneself or in a relationship is suppressed, the same occurs. One's life limbs along, catches, hobbles, protects movement. When there is hurt to these structures and cycles, there is always interruption of libido. Love is not possible then. We lie under the water, just bones, drifting back and forth. To untangle the life-death-life nature means to learn her attenuations, habits, movements. It means to learn the cycles of life and death, to memorize them and so to see how they all go together, how they are all a single organism, just as the skeleton is a single organism. Fear is a poor excuse for not doing the work. We are all afraid. It is nothing new. If you are alive, you are fearful. Among the Inuit, Raven is the trickster. In his undeveloped side, he is a creature of appetite. He likes pleasure only, attempts to avoid all uncertainty and the fears that uncertainty brings. He is a good deal cautious and a good deal greedy to both. He is fearful if something does not immediately look fulfilling, he pounces when it does. He likes bright abalone shell, silver beads, endless vittles, gossip and warm sleeps over the smoke hole. The raven ego is the lover-to-be who wants a sure thing. The raven ego is afraid passion will end. He is afraid and tries to avoid the end of the meal, the end of the fire, the end of the day and end of pleasure. He becomes wily and always to his deterrent for when he forgets his soul, he loses his power. Raven Ego is afraid that if we admit the life-death-life nature into our lives, we will never be happy again. Have we been so very perfectly happy all along, eh? No. But the Raven Ego is very simple like an unsocialized child and not particularly a happy-go-lucky child either. He's more like a child who's watching all the time to see which slice is the biggest, which bed the softest, which lover the most handsome. Three things differentiate living from the soul versus living from ego only. They are the ability to sense and learn new ways. Number one. The tenacity to ride a rough road. Number two. And the patience to learn deep love over time. Number three. Raven ego, however, has a penchant and a proclivity to avoid learning. Patience is not ego's strong suite. 
a strong suit. Enduring in, in relationship is not Raven's forte. So it is not from the ever-changing ego that we love another, but rather from the wild soul. A wild patience, as poet Adrian Rich puts it, it is required in order to untangle the bones, to learn the meaning of Lady Death, to have the tenacity to stay with her. It would be a mistake to think that it takes a muscle-bound hero to accomplish this. It does not. It takes a heart that is willing to die and be born and die and be born again and again and again. The untangling of skeleton woman reveals that she is ancient and old beyond discriminate time. It is she who measures energy versus distance. She who weighs time versus libido. She who heft spirit versus survival. She meditates on it, she studies it, she considers and then she moves to invest it with a spark or two or a sudden blaze of wildfire or to tamp it down a bit, bank it down or put out its life altogether. She knows what is required. She knows when it is time. In untangling her, we acquire the ability to sense what comes next. To better comprehend how all the aspects of nature's psyche interrelate. How we can participate. My favorite word. Participate. Participate with life. To untangle her means to gain articulate knowledge of herself and other. It means to strengthen our ability to follow the phases, projects, eras of incubation, birthing and transformations peaceably and with as much grace as we can marshal. So in this sense, a lover who once was rather artless about love becomes far better at it through having observed this skeleton woman and from having sorted her bones. As one begins to ascertain the patterns of life-death life, one can anticipate the cycles of the relationship in terms of increase following deficit and attrition following abundance. A person who has untangled skeleton woman knows patience, knows better how to wait. He is not shocked or afraid of sparseness. He is not overwhelmed by fruition. He needs to attain to have right now are transformed. His needs to attain to have right now are transformed into a finer craft of finding all facets of relationship, observing how cycles of relationship work together. He is not afraid to relate to the beauty of fierceness, the beauty of the unknown, the beauty of the not beautiful. And in learning and working at all these, he becomes the quintessential wild lover. How does a man learn these things? How does anyone learn them? Enter into direct dialogue with the life, death, life, nature by listening to the inner voice that is not ego. Learn by asking the life, death, life, nature direct questions about love and loving and then listen to her answers. Through all we learn to not be misled by the nagging voice at the back of the mind that says, this is silly, I'm just making this all up. We learn to ignore that voice and listen to what is heard beyond that. 
we learn to follow what we hear. All those things that bring us closer to acute awareness, the love of devotion and a clear view of the soul. It is good to make a meditative and daily practice of untangling the life-death-life-nature over and over again. The fisherman sings a little one-line song over and over to aid the untangling. It is a song to help awareness, to help untangle the skeleton woman nature. We do not know what he is singing. We can only guess. When we are untangling this nature, it would be good for us to sing something like this. What must I give more to death, more death to today? In order to generate more life, what do I know should die, but I am hesitant to allow it to do so? What must die in me in order to, for me to love, love more? What not beauty do I fear? Of what use is the power of the not beautiful to me today? What should die today? What should live? What life am I afraid to give birth to? If not now, when? Beautiful questions. If I were you, I would stop this recording podcast right now and simply write down the answers to this quickly. Don't think much because the first thought is the inner voice. Thinking too much is the ego's voice. Just a little tip. If we sing the song of consciousness till we feel the burn of truth, we know a burst of fire into we throw a burst of fire into the darkness of psyche so we can see what we're doing, what we are truly doing, not what we wish to think we are doing. This is the untangling of one's feelings, the beginning of understanding why love and life are to be lived by the bones. To face skeleton woman, one need not take on the role of the solar hero, nor be armed, nor do armed battle, nor risk one's life in the wilderness. One need only care to untangle her. This power in knowing the life death life nature awaits lovers who go beyond running away, who push beyond a desire to find themselves safe. The ancients who sought this life and death knowledge called it the pearl of great price, the in, in, inimitable treasure. Holding the threads of these mysteries and untangling them brings a powerful knowing about fate and time. Time for all things, all things in their own time, rolling with the rough, gliding on the smooth. There is no knowledge more preserving, more nutritive, more strengthening of love than this. That is what awaits the lover who will sit by the fire with skeleton woman, who will contemplate her and allow the feeling for her to rise. It awaits for those who will touch her not beauty and who will untangle her life, death, life, nature with tenderness. Isn't that beautiful? Be well, my friends.
and we come to the next chapter next explanation called the sleep of trust in this stage of relationship a lover returns to a state of innocence a state in which he is still awed by the emotional elements a state in which he is full of wishes hopes and dreams innocence is different than naivete there is an old saying in the backwoods ignorance is not knowing anything and being attracted to good innocence is knowing everything and still being attracted to the good let us see how far we have come now the fisherman hunter has brought the life death life nature to the surface he has outside his will been pursued by her but he has also managed to face her he has felt compassion for her tangled state and he has touched her all these are leading him into the a full participation with her all these are leading him into a transformation into love <clears throat> while the metaphor of sleep can denote unconsciousness here it symbolizes creation and renewal sleep is the symbol of rebirth in creation myths souls go to sleep while a transformation of some duration takes place for in sleep we are recreated renewed sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care sleep is sore labor's bath the balm of hurt minds great nature's second cause chief nourisher in life's feast shakespeare macbeth 2 if you could lay your eyes upon the most fire-hardened most cruel and unpitying person alive during sleep and at the moment of waking you would see in them for a moment the untainted child spirit the pure innocent In sleep we are once again brought back to a state of sweetness in sleep we are remade we are reassembled from the inside out fresh and new as innocence this state of wise innocence is entered by shedding cynicism and protectionism and by re-entering the state of wonder one sees in most humans who are very young and many who are very old it is a practice of looking through the eyes of a knowing and loving spirit instead of through those of the whipped dog the hounded creature the mouth atop a stomach the angry wounded human innocence is a state that is renewed as one sleeps unfortunately many throw it aside with the coverlet as they arise each day it would be better to take an alert innocence to take an alert innocence with us and draw it close for warmth though the initial return to this state may require scraping away years of jaded viewpoints decades of callous and carefully constructed bulwarking once one has returned one never has to pry for it dig for it ever again to return to an alert innocence is not so much an effort like moving a pile of bricks from here to there as it is standing still long enough to let the spirit find you 
Isn't this a beautiful line? And I'm going to read it again. Standing still long enough to let the spirit find you. It is said that all that you are seeking is also seeking you. That if you lie still, sit still, it will find you. It has been waiting for you a long time. Once it is here, don't move away. Rest. See what happens next. This is the way to approach the death nature, not as wily and shrewd, but with the trust of spirit. The word innocent is often used to mean a person of no knowing or a simpleton, but the roots of the word mean to be free of injury or hurt. In Spanish, the word inocente is understood to mean a person who tries not to harm another but who also is able to heal any injury or harm to herself. La Innocenta is the name often given to a curandera healer, one who heals others of injury or harm. To be an innocent means to be able to see clearly what is the matter and to mend it. These are the powerful ideas behind innocence. It is considered not only an attitude about avoiding harm to others or self, but also an ability to mend and restore oneself and others. Think of it. What a boon to all the cycles of loving. By way of this metaphor of innocent sleep, the fisherman trusts the life-death-life nature enough to rest and to revivify in her presence. He is entering into a transition that will take him to a deeper understanding, a higher stage of maturity. When lovers enter this state, they are surrendering to the forces within themselves, those that have trust, faith and the profound power of innocence. In this spiritual sleep, the lover trusts that the works of his soul will be worked in him that all will be as it should be. This lover sleeps the sleep of the wise instead of the weary. There is weariness that is real when danger is near and weariness that is unwarranted and that comes from having been wounded previously. The latter causes men to act touchy and disinterested even when they feel They would like to display warmth and caring. Persons who are afraid of being taken for a ride or of being trapped or who vociferously state their claims over and over again of wanting to be free are those who let the gold slip right through their fingers. Many times I've heard a man say he has a good woman who is enamored of him and he of her but he just can't let go enough to see what he really feels about her. The turning point for such a person is when he allows himself to love even though, even though he has pangs, even though he is nervous, even though he has been wounded 
previously even though he fears the unknown sometimes there are no words to help one's courage sometimes you have just you just have to jump there has to be at some point in a man's life a time when he will trust where love takes him where he fears more being more being trapped in some dry cracked riverbed of a psyche than being out in lush but uncharted territory when a life is too controlled there becomes less and less life to control in this stage of innocence the fisherman returns to being a young soul for in his sleep he is unscared unscarred and there is no memory of what he was yesterday or before in sleep he is not striving to gain place or position in his sleep he is renewed within the masculine psyche there is a creature an unwounded man oh sorry unwounded man who believes in the good who has no doubts about life who is not only wise but who also is not afraid to die some would identify this as a warrior self but it is not that it is a spirit self and a young spirit at that one who regardless of being tormented wounded and exiled continues to love because it is in its own way of self healing self mending women will testify to seeing this creature lurking in a man outside of his awareness this young spirit's ability to bring the power of healing to bear on his own psyche is so awesome that it is astounding his trust is not dependent on his lover not to hurt him his is a trust that any wound that comes to him can be healed a trust that new life follows old a trust that there is deeper meaning in all these things that seemingly petty events are not without meaning the things of one's life the ragged the jagged and the lilting and the soaring all can be used as life's energy i would like to read this paragraph once again because it is entirely true for me the entire book is true for me but here it is women will testify to seeing this creature lurking in a man outside of his awareness this young spirit's ability to bring the power of healing to bear on his own psyche is so awesome that it is astounding his trust is not dependent on his lover not to hurt him his is a trust that any wound that comes to him can be healed a trust that new life follows old a trust that there is deeper meaning in all these things that seemingly petty events are not without meaning that all things of one's life the ragged the jagged and the lilting and the soaring all can be used as life's energy ah it must be said too that sometimes a man as a man becomes more free and closer to the skeleton woman his love becomes more fearful and has some work of her own to do regarding untangling observation observing the sleep that returns innocence learning to trust the life death life nature when both are well initiated they together then have the power with which to balm any hurt outlive any pain
Sometimes a person is afraid to go to sleep in the other's presence, afraid to return to a psychic innocence or afraid the other person will take advantage of him. Such people project all manner of motives onto the other and simply do not trust themselves. Yet it is not their lovers they mistrust. It is the life, death life nature they have not yet reckoned with. It is the life, it's the death nature that they need to trust. As in sleep, the life, death life nature in its most wildish form is as simple as a graceful exhalation, ending, and inhalation, beginning. The only trust required is to know that when there is one ending, there will be another beginning. In order to do this, if we are lucky, we are worn down and slip into trust by giving in to its pull. The steeper way is to be forcibly throwing ourselves into a trusting state of mind. The steeper way is by forcibly throwing ourselves into a trusting state of mind, forcing ourselves to remove all the conditions, all the ifs and onlys. However, there is usually no sense waiting till we feel strong enough to trust, because that day will never come. So yes, we take the chance that what we have been taught to believe about the life-death-life nature is wrong and that our instincts are right. For love to thrive, the mate must trust that whatever will be, will be transformative. He must let himself enter that state of sleep that returns one to a wise innocence, one that creates and recreates as it should those deepest coils of life, death, life experience. And with that, we conclude this part of the explanation and tomorrow I shall read to you Giving the tear. Oh, it's so beautiful. And then there will be the later phases of love. Heart as a drum and singing up. And then there is the dance of body and soul. Oh, beautiful. And that will be it. And then the next story is even more amazing. Chapter 6. Be well, my friend. part of the story's explanation is titled Giving the Tear As the fisherman sleeps, a tear is released from the corner of his eye. Skeleton woman spies it, is filled with thirst and awkwardly crawls to him to drink from the cup of his eye. What, we ask, could be dreaming, could he be dreaming that would cause such a tear to come forth? Tears carry creative power. In mythos, the giving of tears causes immense creation and heartfelt reunion. In herbal folklore, tears are used as a binder to secure elements, unite ideas, join souls. In fairy tales, when tears are thrown, they frighten away robbers or cause rivers to flood. 
When sprinkled, they call the spirits. When poured onto the body, they heal lacerations and restore sight. When touched, they cause conception. When one has ventured this far into relationship with the life-death-life nature, the tear that is cried is the tear of passion and compassion mixed together for oneself and for the other. It is the hardest tear to cry and especially for men and certain kinds of street tough women. This tear of passion and compassion is most often wept after the accidental finding of treasure, after the fearful chase, after the untangible, for it is the combination of these that causes the exhaustion, the dis- disassembling of defences, the facing of oneself, the stripping down to the bones, the desire for both knowledge and relief. These cause a soul to peer into what the soul truly wants and to weep for loss and love of both. As surely a skeleton woman was brought to the surface, now this tear, this feeling in the man, is also brought to the surface. It is an instruction in loving both self and another. Stripped now of all the bristles and hooks and shivs of the daytime world, the man draws skeleton woman to lie beside him, to drink and be nourished by his deepest feeling. In his new form, he is able to feed the thirsty other. Her ghost has been summoned by his weeping. Ideas and powers from far off in the psychic world unite over the warmth of his tear. The history of the symbol of water as creator, as pathway, is long and varied. Spring comes in a rain of tears. Entry to the lower world is upon a waterfall of tears. A tear heard by anyone of heart is understood as a cry to come closer. And so does the fisherman cry, and closer she does come. Without his tear, she would remain only bones. Without his tear, he would never awaken to love. The tear of the dreamer comes when a lover-to-be allows himself to feel and to bind up his own wounds. When he allows himself to see the self-destruction, he is wrought by his loss of faith in the goodness of self. When he feels cut away from the nurturing and revivifying cycle of the life-death-life nature, Then he weeps, for he feels his loneliness, his acute homesickness for that psychic place, for that wild knowing. This is the man healing, the man growing in understanding. He takes on his own medicine making. He takes on the task of feeding the deleted other. Through his tears, he begins to create. To love another is not enough. To be not an impediment in the life of the other is not enough. It is not enough to be supportive and there for them and all the rest. The goal is to be knowledgeable about the ways of life and death in one's own life and in panorama. And the only way to be a knowing man is to go to school in the bones of skeleton woman. She is waiting for the signal of deep feeling, the one tear that says, I admit the wound. This admission feeds the life-death-life nature, causes the bond to be made and the deep knowing in a man to begin. 
We all have made the mistake of thinking someone else can be our healer, our thriller, our filling. It takes a long time to find it is not so. Mostly because we put the wound outside ourselves instead of ministering to it within. There is probably nothing a woman wants more from a man than for him to dissolve his projections and face his own wound. When a man faces his wound, the tear comes naturally and his loyalties within and without are made clearer and stronger. He becomes his own healer. He is no longer lonely for the deeper self. He no longer applies to the woman to be his analgesic. There is a story that describes this well. In Greek myth, there was a man named Philoctetes. Philoctetes. <laughs> Never heard of that one. Philoctetes, it is told, he inherited the magic bow and arrow of Heracles. Philoctetes was wounded in the foot during battle. However, this wound would not heal and instead grew so malodorous and his cries of pain so horrible that his companions abandoned him on the island Lemnos and left him there to die. Philoctetes barely escaped starvation by using Heracles' bow to shoot small game, but his wound festered and the smell grew ever greater so that any sailor, even remotely near the island, had to steer clear. However, a group of men conspired to brave the stench of Philoctetes' wound in order to steal the magical bow and arrow from him. The men drew lots and the task fell to the youngest. The older men encouraged him to be quick and travel under cover of night, and so the young man set sail. But on the wind and overwhelming the smell of the sea came another odour so horrible that the man had to wrap his face in cloth wrung in seawater in order to breathe freely. Nothing, however, could protect his ears from Philoctetes's terrible cries. The moon was shrouded in cloud. Good, he thought, as he moored his boat and crept to the side of the agonized Philoctetes. As he reached for the precious bow and arrow, the moon suddenly shed her light upon the haggard face of the dying old man. And something in the young man, he knew not what, suddenly moved him to tears. The young man was so overwhelmed with the compassion and mercy that endured. Instead of stealing the old man's bow and arrows, the young man purified Philoctetes' wound, bound it and stayed with him, feeding him, cleaning him, building fires and caring for the old man till he could carry him to Troy where he could be healed by the semi-divine physician Esculapius. Esculapius. The tear of compassion is wept in response to realizing the stinking wound. The stinking wound has different configurations and sources for each person. For some it means spending a lifetime pulling oneself up the mountain hand over hand, belatedly to find we've been working our way up the wrong mountain. For some it is resolved and unmedicated issues of abuse in childhood. For others it is a crushing loss of some sort in life or in love. One young man suffered loss of his first love and had no support from anyone and no understanding about how to heal from it. 
For years he had wandered broken and protesting that he was not injured. One man was a rookie player for a pro ball team. He accidentally but permanently injured his leg so that his lifelong dream disappeared overnight. The stinking wound was not only the tragedy, not only the injury, but for 20 years time, the only medicine he poured into the wound was bitterness, substance abuse, carousing. When men have wounds like these, you can smell them coming. No woman, no love, no attention heals such a wound. Only self-compassion for one's own wounded state. When the man cries the tear he has come upon is pain, and he knows it can he knows it when he touches it. He sees how his life has been lived protectively because of the wound. He sees what of life he has missed because of it. He sees how he hamstrings his love for life for himself and for another. In fairy tales, tears change people, remind them of what is important and save their very souls. Only a hardness of heart inhibits weeping and union. There is a saying, a prayer really, among the Sufis, asking God to break one's heart. Shatter my heart so a new room can be created for a limitless love. The internal feeling of tenderness that moves the fisherman to untangle skeleton woman also allows him to feel other forgotten longings to resurrect his self-compassion. Because he is in a state of innocence, that is, thinking all things are possible, he is unafraid to say his soul desires. He is unafraid to wish, for he believes his need will be met. It is a great relief for him to believe his soul will be fulfilled. When the fisherman cries his true feeling, the union with the life-death-life nature is furthered. The fisherman's tear draws skeleton woman to him, causes her to thirst, causes her to desire further participation with him. As in fairy tales, tears call things to us, they correct things, provide the missing part of peace. In the African tale, Golden Falls, a magician shelters a runaway slave girl by crying so many tears, he creates a waterfall under which she takes refuge. In the African tale, Bone Battle, souls of dead healers are summoned by the sprinkling of tears, children's tears upon the earth. We are reminded again and again of the power of this great feeling. There is drawing power in tears and within the tear itself, powerful images that guide us. Tears not only represent feeling, but are also lenses through which we gain an alternative vision. In the story, the fisherman is letting his heart break, not break down, but break open. It is not the love of Theta, breast milk mother, he wants, not the love of Lucre, not the love of power or fame or sexuality. It is a love that comes upon him, a love he has always carried within him, but has never acknowledged before. A man's soul is seated more deeply and more clearly as he apprehends his relationship. The tear comes, she drinks. Now something else will develop and be reborn within him, 
something he can give to her, a vast and oceanic heart. And the next amazing chapter in this story is called The Later Phases of Love heart as drum and singing up. It is told that the skin or body of a drum determines who and what will be called into being. Some drums are believed to be journeying drums, transporting the drummer and the listeners, also called passengers in storytelling tradition, to various and sundry places. Other kinds of drums are powerful in other ways. Drums made of human bone called the dead, Drums made of the hide of certain animals are good for calling the animal spirits. Drums that are particularly beautiful call beauty. Drums with bells attached call child spirits and weather. Drums that are low in voice call the spirits who can hear that tone. Drums high in voice call spirits who can hear that tone and so on. A drum made of heart will call the spirits that are concerned with the human heart. The heart symbolizes is essence. The heart is one of the few essential organs human and animals must have to live. Remove one kidney, the human lives. Additionally, take both legs, the gallbladder, one lung, one arm and the spleen, the human lives. Not well, perhaps, but there is life. Take away certain brain functions and the human still lives. Take the heart, the person is gone instantly. The psychological and physiological center is the heart. In Hindu Tantras, which are instructions from the gods to humans, the heart is the Anahata Chakra, the nerve center that encompasses feeling for another human, feeling for oneself, feeling for the earth and feeling for God. It is the heart that enables us to love as a child loves, fully without reservation and with no hull of sarcasm, depreciation or protectionism. When skeleton woman uses the fisherman's heart, she uses the central motor of the entire psyche, the only thing that really matters, the only thing capable of creating pure and innocent feeling. They say it is the mind that thinks and creates. This story says otherwise, that it is the heart that thinks and calls the molecules, atoms, feelings, yearnings, and whatever else need be into one place to create the matter that fulfills skeleton woman's creation. The story contains this promise. Allow skeleton woman to become more palpable in your life and she will make your life larger in return. When you free her from her tangled and misunderstood state and realize her as both teacher and lover, she becomes ally and partner. Giving one's heart for new creation, for new life, for the forces of life-death-life is a descent into the feeling realm. It may be difficult for us, especially if we have been wounded by disappointment or by sorrow, but it is meant to be drummed through to bring to life, full life, the skeleton woman, to come close to the one who has always been close to us. When a man gives his whole heart, he becomes an amazing force. He becomes an inspiratorize, inspiratorize, Mm, interesting word. A role that in the past was reserved for women only. 
When skeleton woman sleeps with him, he becomes fertile. He is invested with feminine powers in a masculine milieu. He carries the seeds of new life and of necessary deaths. He inspires new works within himself, but also in those near him. Over the years, I have seen this in others and experienced it myself. It is a profound occasion when you create something of value through your lover's belief in you, through this heartfelt feeling about your work, your project, your subject. It is an amazing phenomenon and it is not necessarily limited to a lover. It can occur through anyone who gives his or her, her heart to you in a deep manner. So the man's bond with the life-death-life-nature will eventually give him ideas by the dozens and life plots and situations and musical scores and colors and images without parallel. For the life-death-life-nature, the wild woman archetype has at her disposal all that ever was and all that ever will be. When she creates things flesh onto herself, the person whose heart she uses feels it, is filled with creation himself, bursts with it, brims over from it. The story illustrates also a double power that comes from the psyche through the symbols of drumming and singing. In mythos, songs heal wounds and are used to bring game closer. Persons are summoned by the singing of their names. Pain is relieved, magic breeds restores the body, magic breaths restore the body. The dead are called or resurrected through song. It is told that all creation was accompanied by a sound or word said aloud, a sound or word whispered or spoken on the breath. The speaker of such sound words may or may not have known or comprehended their meaning. Singing is considered to issue from a mysterious source one that enswines, uh, one that envisions the whole of creation. All the animals and humans and trees and plants and all who hear it. In storytelling, it is said that anything that has sap has singing. The creation hymn produces psychic change. The tradition of such is vast. There are love-producing songs in Iceland and among the Wichita and the Micmac. In Ireland... Magic power is called down by magic song. In one Icelandic story, a person falls on the ice cracks and severs a limb, but it is regenerated through the singing of song. In almost all cultures at the creation, the gods give the people songs, telling them that to use them will call the gods back at any time. That song will bring to them the things they need as well as transform or banish those things they do not need or want. In this manner, the giving of song is a compassionate act that enables humans to call the gods and the great forces into human circles. Song is a special kind of language that accomplishes this in a way the spoken voice cannot. The song, like the drum, creates an ordinary consciousness, a trans, a non-ordinary consciousness, a trance state, a prayer state. All humans and many animals are susceptible to having their consciousness altered by sound. Certain sounds like a dripping faucet or a car horn can make us anxious and even angry. Other sounds like the ocean's roar or the wind in trees fill us with good feeling. The sound of thudding as in footsteps causes a snake to feel a negative tension, but being softly sung to, an, to can cause a snake to dance. 
The word pneuma, breath, shares its origins with the word psyche. They are both considered words for soul. So when there is a song in a tale or mythos, we know that the gods are being called upon to breathe their wisdom and power into the matter at hand. We know that the forces are at work in the spirit world, busy crafting soul. So the singing of song and using the heart as drum are both mystical acts awakening layers of the psyche not much used or seen. The breath or pneuma flowing over us shakes open certain apertures, rouses certain otherwise inaccessible faculties. We cannot say for each person what will be sung up, drummed up, because these open such odd and unusual apertures in the human who participates thusly. However, one can be assured that whatever is enacted will be numinous and arresting. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you.